I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. Sure is. Hello, gorgeous. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm still hanging in there. I'm very impressed with myself and my energy right now. Yeah, honestly, the listeners should know it's like 9 p.m. at this point. Both of us, I feel like, are kind of like running on fumes at the moment. Yes, I worked far from my home in L.A. (laughs) terms and had a full day. And I, you know, I was just thinking, though, I drank like the second half of my like thermos of coffee on the drive home from Santa Monica today. So I think that might be where this like crazy Madigan energy is coming from. Are, does that affect the way you sleep at all or not really? Like No, I can literally, no, I, I was explaining to Keegan before we started recording anything tonight. I have an incredible tolerance for coffee and it's really strange because my mom is the same way. It, it gives me energy, but if I want to sleep, I can still sleep. Like give me yeah. a bed to lay down on and even if I've had three cups of coffee, like it might be a little bit more difficult, but I think it like it almost feels like it's two different parts of my brain. You know, what's really weird to me, and maybe there's some like science behind this or something, but like I can have coffee in the middle of the workday and take a nap right after if it's like mid afternoon. Yeah, I can't have coffee at like 8 p.m. and then go to sleep at 10. Like, I don't know if it's like my body. It's because it's nighttime. Like, I don't know why. Although I have read that the best way to power nap would be to drink a cup of coffee and then take like a 20 minute nap right after that. Because as you're resting, your body is like taking in all that caffeine. Getting hyped. Right? I'm like, that's a really great 
point. Well, that's what I did today. So maybe, maybe, maybe that's why you're still kicking it right now. I am still tired, though. I mean, at no point today did I feel refreshed, even post nap. So uh, I never <laughs> feel refreshed post nap. Like maybe once a year, I'll feel refreshed post nap. After naps, I'm more cranky than I was to begin with. <laughs> Oh, man. Sometimes I wake up from a nap and it is like the most comforting feeling. But it has been such a long time, like such a long time since I've had like a really good quality nap. There's always panic in there for me. I mean, I am not I've really been experiencing some horrible like sleep since the pandemic started, like some insomnia and really horrible, frustrating nightmares and restless sleep and things like that. So for me, it's like even napping, I always have bad dreams, always like I never feel fully rested. But enough about me. <laughs> enough about our napping and caffeine habits. Should we and jump the fact in? that like I haven't had a decent night's sleep in three years. Let's talk about something else. <laughs> yes. Let's talk about our forgotten feminist favorites for the month, the month of January. The month of January. Well, they are soon to be less forgotten. Hopefully. I mean, I feel like that's giving our show a lot of credit, but I'll take it. I mean, it's less forgotten by even if 10 people listen to it, it's less forgotten by those 10 people, you know? I should stop selling myself short. Why are you you talking about my friend like that? It's 2022, okay? The time to talk yourself up is now, right Now. now. I love the phrase, you can't hate yourself into loving yourself. That's very true. I think it makes a lot of sense. Oh, gosh. It makes so much sense. I feel like our culture very much like makes you feel like you can bully yourself. Like I saw a... Or that um, you should bully yourself into loving yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I saw a tweet that I really related to that said like, therapist, you should be nicer to yourself. Me. Yeah, you stupid bitch. Be nicer to yourself. And I'm like... 100% Percent. Definitely how I feel about myself. Like. Oh my God. <laughs> I have the biggest potty mouth in my brain toward myself. Towards and I'm myself. Very hard to change that. Okay. All right. Well, I am very excited to talk about the woman in which I'm going to be speaking of today. I want us to go back to a week ago. What's in the news? Number 188. We were talking about the new quarters. With the different famous historical women on them. And there was one woman by the name of Wilma Mankiller. And I was like, She was on my short list for this one too because of that exact same reason. But I I was like, I was like, Who who is she? Who Who are you? Who are you? And I had to know it did not disappoint. I have 19 pages of notes. I'm going to do my very best to be concise. Yes. Because. Girl, (laughs) like, and I didn't even go to all the sources that I probably should have. Like, I left out so many details and so many specifics, and I am still at 19 pages. So I'm going to do my best to be concise, skip where I can, but still give you a clear picture of who this amazing person is. So before I get into her life, I wanted to give a brief introduction into a part of Cherokee society that I learned about. So a lot of uh, what I'm going to be discussing has a lot to do with Native people, Indigenous people, 
And I also wanted to say that I did a little bit of research as to like proper terms and things like that. It seems like Native Americans kind of interchangeably these days use both like American Indian or Indian and Native American. So whatever I read in my notes is what I wrote down and what I'm going to be relaying to you. So I'm going to try to do my best with that. And I also want to touch on one part of Cherokee society that I think um, means a lot to Wilma Mankiller throughout her life. And that is that they share a matrilineal society, meaning that family lineage is traced through the female line. So property, social status, all of that is descended from the woman's line instead of the father's line. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, the mother does it births not, yeah. It does. Yeah. It does make sense. So in traditional Cherokee society, a child is considered born into the mother's family or clan. The most important man in the child's life is not their father, but the mother's brother, eldest brother. What if so, you don't have any brothers? I mean, I don't know. I didn't go I didn't go into that. <laughs> I took I took nineteen pages of notes. Did you really want me to get that far into Cherokee society? No. No. Okay, so once now that I've kind of given that like brief little aside, let's get into Wilma. Wilma Pearl Mankiller was born on Max's birthday, November 18th, 1945, except for Max was not born in 1945. Right? No I then wrote <laughs> I then wrote we we love a Scorpio queen. Um she was born Oh yeah, we love a fierce water sign and Scorpios I mean, literally, like, all the memes that we send each other on Instagram are, like, astrology-related, and it's always Pisces, Cancer, and Scorpio. Yes, three water signs. I mean, we're nuts. So she's right in there with us, though. She was born at the Hastings Indian Hospital in Telequa, Oklahoma, to Mother Clara. Telequa. Telequa. Thank you. Telequa, Oklahoma, to Mother Clara and Father Charlie Mankiller. Her dad was full-blooded Cherokee, whose ancestors had been forced to relocate to Indian Territory from Tennessee during the Trail of Tears in the 1830s. Her mother's ancestors were Scots, Irish, and English immigrants who came to the United States in the 1700s. The surname Mankiller in the Cherokee language refers to a traditional Cherokee military rank, similar to a captain or a major, or a shaman with the ability to avenge wrongdoings with their spiritual methods. We love to hear it. Isn't that cool? When Clara and Charlie got married in 1937, they settled on Charlie's father's allotment known as Mankiller Flats. Wilma was the middle child of 12 siblings. That's a lot. That's a lot of siblings. That's too many. <laughs> look, I wasn't going to say it, uh, but I put my me, hand up for me personally. Um, it's it's a lot it's a lot. I put my hand up like I'm whispering, even though podcasting isn't a visual medium. And I was like, it's too many. It's too like, many. My body says no. <laughs> my body says 12 is 12 is no. But I mean, like, damn, Clara, man, killer. Like, I mean, good for you. It if it's done. what you want. Good right. for you. So her siblings were Don, Frida, Robert, Francis, John, Linda, Richard, Vanessa, Lou, James, Ray, and William. Everyone in the family, including her mother, spoke both Cherokee and English at home. And her mother was not Cherokee. So that was really amazing. That, she like, learned the language. Yeah. yeah. And it seems like their family was like very much ingrained in that culture. It was a small house with no electricity or plumbing. And they lived in extreme poverty when she was young. To feed themselves, the family would hunt and fish as well as maintain a vegetable garden. They also grew peanuts and strawberries, which they would sell. 
The man-killer children only went to school through the fifth grade in a three-room schoolhouse. The family joined the Baptist church, but the children were wary of the white congregants and customs as their parents had always immersed them into Cherokee heritage. Because of this, they preferred going to tribal ceremonial gatherings where family elders taught the children traditional stories. And I think that this is kind of where it goes to show that even though they're in American culture in some sense of the way and their mom is white and all this kind of stuff. Like these children were really raised to be very connected with their native selves. They lived on their ancestors, you know, plot of land and they didn't really feel like they had a connection to the white people that were surrounding them. Mm -hmm. When a severe drought hit the family home in Oklahoma in 1955, it became even more difficult for the family to provide for itself. As part of the Indian Termination Policy, the Indian Relocation Act of 1956 provided assistance to relocate Native families to urban areas. These policies were ongoing during the mid-40s through the 1960s and were made up of a series of laws and practices with the intent of assimilating Native Americans into mainstream, quote, American culture. Kind of like I was discussing, there was this real, like, push for the Natives to conform to the whiteness that was around them and that was really something that this family didn't feel it seems like every however many years there is a big big push for that i mean because like before this there was definitely a huge push specifically within um cherokee culture i lived in missouri and that was very near oklahoma like the border to oklahoma was very very close by yeah like where i lived And um, so we spent a lot of time there, which is where a lot of like Cherokee tribes relocated after the Trail of Tears. Um, And there's a lot of talk you can go to. I think I've been to a like Cherokee museum. I think it's in Tahlequah. And they talk about like the five quote unquote civilized tribes that they like focused on. And Cherokee is one of those. And like they're, you know, really pushing them to move into a more or like kind of combining their traditional dress with a more Western style dress in order to like ease them into assimilation. Yeah. Really, there was a big push for that. So and then it sounds like in another 50, 60 years, there was another big push for it. Yeah. I mean, that explains it. That explains it perfectly. Like that's exactly what they were going through. So this was kind of like an option for their families to be relocated. And since they were really, really struggling under extreme poverty, they were like, yeah, we'll do this. The Bureau of Indian Affairs were like promising them better jobs and better lives. So they were like, you really want to be a part of this removal act. It's great. Um, So the family decided to be a part of it and chose to live in California since Wilma's mother had some family there. So they sold their belongings and took a train from Oklahoma to San Francisco. What a train ride. What a long train ride. (laughs) Really? Though they had been promised an apartment was waiting for them in San Francisco, when they arrived, there were no apartments available. They were housed in a squalid hotel in the Tenderloin District for many weeks until moving to Pachero Hill. With 12 kids? With 12 kids. Living in the Tenderloin District. That's not what you want. No, in a hotel with 12 kids. I just enough. No, no, no. no. All my hair (laughs) would be gone. I would have torn it all out. On top of all the financial struggles, there were few Native neighbors leaving the family feeling alienated from their identities and their surroundings. When Wilma went to school there, she was bullied by the other students for her last name, her clothes, the way she spoke, which really caused her to withdraw, and she was absolutely miserable. 
Within a year, the family had made enough money to relocate to Daly City, California, but this wasn't what Wilma wanted either, so she ran away to her grandmother's home in Riverbank, California. She had kind of run away back and forth a few times and then eventually convinced her mom to let her live there for a year. And then when she came back, they ended up living in an even worse part of San Francisco that was ridden with crime and drugs and gangs. And Wilma was still really feeling like she didn't really have anywhere that she belonged. So she started going to the San Francisco Community Center. And there she kind of started to find just like some other people that were like her and other activities and things like that. She graduated high school in 1963. When she finished high school, she moved in with her sister Frances and got a clerical job at a finance company. That summer, she met Hector Hugo Olea de Bardi at a dance. Hector was an Ecuadorian college student from a well-to-do family. Wilma found him sophisticated, and they began dating. Her parents weren't thrilled with her choice and partner, but the two married anyway in Reno, Nevada on November 13, 1963, then spent their honeymoon in Chicago. When they returned to California, they got an apartment in the Mission District, and 10 months later, their daughter Felicia was born. They moved again a few years later to a new house and invited their second daughter, Gina, into the family. At the time, Hector was still studying at San Francisco State University and working for Pan Am American Airlines, seeing his role as family provider and leaving all of the child raising to Wilma, of course. Mm, Traditional. Which, I mean, very traditional, left Wilma feeling restless and unfulfilled, so she returned to school enrolling in the Skyline Junior College. And this was the first time that Wilma ever really enjoyed going to school. Like I mentioned earlier, she was bullied a lot and teased and made fun of and never really felt like she had a place in school, which I'm sure really affected her ability to learn and feel like she was smart and enjoy classes. But she really felt like she needed to have more of an independent identity. So this was the first time that going to school really felt her made her feel more confident about herself. Yeah. So, again, I'm going to take a slight aside, but it's very important because this is the catalyst for Wilma's activism. And I wanted to talk about how in 1964, Alcatraz Island was occupied by Native American activists for the first time on March 8th, 1964. Have you ever heard of this before? No. Okay. Well, I don't think so. It's It went on for like almost a year or something like that. I talk about it later. I can't remember how long it goes on. But essentially, Native Americans descended upon Alcatraz Island and were like, this is ours, like we're occupying it. And there is an amazing documentary that covers the whole story. It's called Escaping to Alcatraz. If anyone is interested, I highly recommend it. So the whole thing was that the occupiers demanded that the island's facilities be turned into new structures for an Indian education center, ecology center, and cultural center. They claimed that according to the Treaty of Fort Laramie in 1868, they were promised the return of all retired, abandoned, or out-of-use federal lands to the native peoples from whom they were acquired. Along with multiple Indian protests in Alcatraz, students in the city were also protesting the Vietnam War and for civil rights, ethnic minorities, and women. So, again, we've talked about San Francisco in the 60s -hmm. quite a lot on this show, so we kind of already know what that environment was like, and Wilma was a part of that. But then on top of that, there was this amazing act of protest going on on Alcatraz Island, and it was her own people, like it was people that looked like her and that she felt connected to that really ignited this like activist spirit in her heart. So she started working on fundraising and support, gathering supplies like blankets and food and water for those on the island. 
Soon after the occupation began, Wilma discovered that her father was diagnosed with a kidney disease, leading Wilma to discover that she shared the polycystic kidney disease with her father. Ugh. I know. During the 19 months of occupation, I knew it, I knew it was around a year, Wilma learned the skills. Well, even longer, like that's like a year and a half. It was like a year and a half, yeah. I mean, it is an amazing story. I highly recommend learning about it and watching that documentary. It is so good. So during that time, Wilma learned the skills, learned how to organize, and also learned a lot of paralegal skills, like research and things like that. Also, other activists around her encouraged her to finish her studies and begin planning a career. The occupation led to Nixon rescinding the Indian termination policy and established a new policy of self-determination or self-governess. Fun fact, though, however, to this day, you can find graffiti from the period of Native American occupation at many locations on the island. So next time I'm in San Francisco, I want to just walk around and see if I can, like, find some of the old graffiti. I've never been to Alcatraz. Like, I've been to San Francisco several I've seen times. It, but, but I've never I've been. never gone to Alcatraz. Me neither. I'd like love to. to. I yeah. would love to. I think it'd be so much fun. There's so much history there. So, like I mentioned, during the occupation, when she found out that her father was sick and her father passed away in 1971, just a few years later. After that, she began to focus on her classes in social welfare. Against her husband's wishes, she got herself a car for independence. Against his wishes? Yeah, he was like, you can't have a car. It's the 1960s. It's not like the 1910s. I don't know. He's kind of a dick. I'm not a fan of Hector. She began taking her daughters to Native American events along the West Coast, meeting members of different tribes along the way. They would join in on local tribal protests on their journeys as well, once helping campaign for compensation with the Indian Claims Commission and Pacific Gas Electric Company for lands legally taken from the tribe during the California Gold Rush. Back in San Francisco, Wilma founded the East Oakland Native American Youth Center, where she served as director. She wanted the center to have educational programs to help the next generation learn about their heritage. In 1974, Wilma and Hector divorced. Yay! There you go. I'm like, he's holding you back. I know. He was. And so she and the girls moved to Oakland together. She took a job as a social worker with the Urban Indian Resource Center, working on programs conducting research on child abuse and neglect, foster care, and adoption of Native children. In 1976, Wilma's mother returned to Oklahoma, which led to Wilma and her daughters moving in with her. She built a small home near her mother's house on Mankiller Flats. Mankiller Flats. Mankiller Flats, everybody. Now back in Oklahoma, she volunteered to do work for Cherokee Nation and was eventually hired by them in 1977 to work on a program for young Cherokee kids to study environmental science. That same year, she began attending classes at a school called Flaming Rainbow University, which sounds like... Oh my God. The most happening place. Love it. (laughs) I want to have a club. I want to open a bar called Flaming Rainbow I mean, it would have to be a gay bar. There's I mean, no does, way that's a straight sound bar. Like a bar that probably already exists in West Hollywood right now. Like I mean, it probably exists. You're a f- you're flaming and you're a rainbow. Like that is the gayest sounding thing ever, and I oh, love it. Amazing. Okay, so maybe I won't open it up, but if anybody would like to take that idea and open up a bar in WeHo, I mean, true in, allyship there. In, Why not open a gay bar? Anyone who's in the um, LGBTQ plus community, <laughs> if you would like to take that idea and open up the Flaming Rainbow nightclub in West Hollywood, I would love to attend. 
We just ask for at least one free cocktail every time we enter. Can you please have a cocktail called the Man Killer? Ooh. I love it. Okay, I'm just giving you ideas. I'm just giving them away. (laughs) We're losing money, Keegan. We're losing money. (laughs) Leaving money on the table, left and right. (laughs) Oh, man. So actually, the Flaming Rainbow School was created with the mission of providing personalized college education for isolated Native American people and people in rural areas. So it really was this kind of like almost kind of hippie sounding kind of college, but like really cool. It's all about like personalization and things like that. There she completed her Bachelor of Science in Social Sciences with an emphasis on Indian affairs. But she still couldn't get enough of school and took grad courses in community development at the University of Arkansas, all the while continuing to work in the tribal offices as an economic stimulus coordinator. She worked on health care, the Indian child welfare protocols, language services, and senior citizen programs, and a youth shelter. The I gotta woman get was my shit together. Busy. I, I've got to get it together. Like every time I'm sitting over here, like mm, I drank two cups of coffee and took a nap today, and I'm still <laughs> sleepy, you know. And then you hear about like somebody who's doing all of this, and they're a single parent. To uh, I, I don't know. Wow, I wow. don't know. I. I really I got to buy like one of those like life changing day planners or something like I have to do something. I think I'm just willing to accept that I'm a different kind of special than she is. Yeah, I I wish I could accept that. But you know what? I'm never going to be like I would love to be that person. But at the same time, I'm just not going to be. You can't fit a square peg in a round hole. I've got to just, you know respect my own specialness for the way it is, you know, Um, and just hope that I can at least do some of the good that this person did. So a bit of a down note in 1979, Wilma was in an awful car accident. She was actually in the wreck with her very close friend, Sherry Morris, who was in the other car and Sherry actually died in the crash. Wow. Yeah. Like absolutely horrible. But Wilma survived, but suffered broken ribs and breaks in her left leg and ankle. Her face had breaks in it and her right leg was completely crushed. So, And do you ever get over the feeling that, I mean, you didn't kill your friend, but it would feel like that? Yeah, like that that feeling of like, you know. I personally would never get over that. That's been my whole fear with COVID this whole time. Like if I were to get someone sick and they were to die, I would never forgive myself. Right. And it's absolutely not your fault, but it's just that mental kind of like hurdle of getting over that, that that grief and then also mixed up with all of that other stuff. And that survivor's guilt, like knowing that you were able to get through this. But I mean, man, the doctors didn't think that she would ever walk again. She needed 17 operations and plastic surgery to completely reconstruct her face. Like her face was crushed. And she was eventually released from the hospital walking out on crutches. While her recovery was definitely amazing, she started noticing that she had some difficulty with her coordination. She started dropping things, and her voice would get really tired after just a few moments of speaking. Doctors assumed that this was all a result of the car accident until one day Wilma was watching a muscular dystrophy telethon and thought her symptoms sounded similar. She called the muscular dystrophy... The muscular dystrophy... Wow. Dystrophy... The Muscular Dystrophy Center and was diagnosed with my, wow, I forgot to write this out phonetically, myasthenia graves. I know okay, I'm saying I'm that wrong. Just, 
you know, but we're going to. It's just muscular dystrophy in some way. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this particular disease, I did Google it, however, and it can cause varying degrees of skeletal muscle weakness. So someone will kind of look like they've had a stroke, like their muscles in their face just can't hold up anymore. It makes speaking very, very tiresome. Um, so again, a- another really, really big hurdle for her to overcome. But in November of 1980, she began treatment, which consisted of more surgeries and chemotherapy, which she would have to go to for several years. But nevertheless, she was back to work by December 1980. So she started treatment November of 1980. And then like a month later was like, this is cool, no. but I got to keep working. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And That's not only al- she really believes in what she's she's doing. Because and this is the I theme. Would- with my job, I'd be like, I'm sorry, I need at least six months to recover. I cannot. <laughs> you I mean, know? I think this is the difference between like us and her. Like she loves her job. Like we have to go to day jobs to make money to live and do the things we love to do. Like she's just like doing what she loves to do all exactly. the time. Exactly. Like she and that's passionately, what's awesome. which changes the way you work. It changes your work ethic. Totally. Yeah. And like, not only does she just like go back to work, she started working on something called the Bell Project. And this is like, infamous and that was a big um project involving community self-improvement so in the program community members would donate their time and labor to lay 16 miles of pipe for a shared water system build houses or work on building rehabilitation for cherokee tribes because of the success with the bell project she gained notice from ross swimmer a tribal chief who promoted her as first director of a department she devised the community development department of cherokee nation in this she helped raise millions of dollars for the programs in 1983 swimmer a republican asked wilma a democrat to be his running mate in a bid for swimmer's third consecutive term as principal chief whoa whoa The two had vastly different opinions on how to achieve community development, but more so she was surprised by the sexism she faced as a woman in politics. Like I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, in traditional traditional Cherokee societies, families and clans were organized matrilineally and women were wielded a small amount of influence in the tribe. Like they were able to still like share their voices and be respected. Yeah, Yeah, like they Mm -hmm. weren't like they didn't have as much of a say in things like that, but they were at least respected. And at this time, Wilma was receiving death threats, and it was like a she was very shocked by all of this behavior, but remained yeah, steadfast. Extra. Really does like death threats. Like whoa, death threats are Pump always extra. Like y'all yeah. should stop. Relax. Um, but she she remained steadfast. She continued throughout the entire campaign. Swimmer won re-election, and Wilma herself won in a runoff election for deputy chief post which made her the first woman elected as deputy chief of Cherokee Nation. The losers, Perry Wheeler and Agnes Cohen, were so upset by this that they filed a suit with the Cherokee Judicial Appeals Tribunal and the U.S. District Court alleging voting irregularities. Okay, like, being a sore loser is such an ugly look. Like, it's such a bad look. Stop it. Stop it. Well, I mean, I don't like it. It makes you look it just makes you look really bad, too. Like it makes you look weak. It's like, why would you do it? My pride could never could never allow it. Just accept that you lost and maintain like some dignity for God's sake. I love you. (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) Oh, God. But anyways, all those people side with Wilma. They're like, no, like the voting was fine. Everything was like PC. You're good. They said exactly the same thing I just said. They were like. 
listen <laughs> verbatim word for word like I have it written here that's crazy it's exactly what they said oh my gosh so as deputy chief she ran the tribal council which was a 15 member governing body for the Cherokee nation she had assumed that some of the sexism from the campaign would die down now that she had a place of power but this wasn't really so and she really had very little support in the council and felt like she was being spoken over and so she really in- avoided as much involvement with the group as she could and instead focused on other avenues of government that the council didn't control. She's like, well, if, you, if you're not going to listen to me, then I'm going to pave my own path here. One of her first focuses was the full-blood, mixed-blood divide. By the time mm. Wilma was, yeah, by the mm-hmm. time Wilma was elected, the mixed-blooded faction focused on economic growth and favored non-natives being hired to run native businesses. On the other hand, full-blooded peoples believed that such modernization would compromise Cherokee identity. So there was two very different ways of life kind of living sure. simultaneously yeah. together. Wilma wanted to take a middle-of-the-road approach. She persuaded tribal council to change the way tribal council members were elected so that instead of at-large candidates, the potential members came from newly created districts. This made it so that larger populated areas no longer controlled council membership. Very smart. Principal Chief Swimmer was appointed to the U.S. Bureau of Indian Affairs in 1985, having Wilma succeed him, making her the first female principal chief of Cherokee Nation. Almost immediately, the press became very interested in Wilma Mankiller, making her an international celebrity. Her celebrity helped change the rest of society's perception of Native people. In a November 1985 article in People magazine, she explained how Native culture traditions of cooperation and respect for the environment made them a role model for the rest of society. In another interview in Ms. Magazine, she pointed out how Cherokee women had been valued members of their communities before mainstream society imposed patriarchy upon the tribe. She also found her newfound power of the press to educate Cherokee voters on the goals of her administration and her desires to improve their communities. She was also elected that year as the American Indian Woman of the Year and was indicted into the Oklahoma Women's Hall of Fame. She was also given an honorary doctorate degree from the University of New England and a citation for leadership from Harvard. In 1986, what began as a professional relationship changed into a more romantic one with a guy named Charlie Soap, who had worked with Wilma. (laughs) They had met working together on the Bell Project, and they'd been friends for a long time. Um, They kept their relationship a secret until they got married in October 1986. And Charlie actually became a really great ally and asset to Wilma's campaign, like every time she would run for re-election. Charlie was full-blooded Cherokee, and he was instrumental in bringing Wilma's message to the faction and diffusing the gender issue. He did this by reminding them, in Cherokee, about the traditional place of women in Cherokee society. And since he's a man speaking in Cherokee, they're going to listen to him, right? Yeah, and I also do wonder if the fact that even though her mom seemed to be very much in support of that lifestyle, um, if the fact that her mom was not Cherokee by blood, if that had she an was effect half-blooded. on the way that she was perceived, you know, because I have a lot of family members who are Navajo Nation, and, you know, they're half black and half Navajo, but they spent a lot of their time growing up living on the reservations, and it was really tough for them. Like, yeah. a lot, because... 
and and rightly so in a lot of cases, right? There's a lot of distrust for uh, of outsiders oftentimes within um, insular communities like yeah. that. For it's good two reason. very different identities when it comes to like American culture. You know what I mean? Like I think that we talk a lot about like you know racial divides and differences and things like that, and then I feel like the way that Native Americans differ from like mainstream American society, I feel like is much less discussed. You know what I mean? And yeah, like certainly. in those differences and what it would mean to be like a mixed race child of that. You know what I mean? Like I feel like that would come with its extra yes, difficulties it's very, or different yes. difficulties, you know? Dif- difficult. Yeah, yeah, definitely difficult. But I do wonder like if I'm, I'm certain, obviously, there were a lot of like gender dynamics at play. Well, yeah, but it also could but, have had to do with that, too. I think that makes a really yeah. good point. Weeks before the election, Wilma was hospitalized because of her kidney disease. Of course, this led to her opponents claiming she was medically unfit to lead. Her medical emergency had no effect of voter turnout, though, and she won again in a runoff. With another win, the press surrounded her yet again. She continued to use her platform to speak out against stereotypes about Native people, stressing their strengths, and educating broader society on their cultural heritage. That year, in 1987, she also won Ms. Magazine's Woman of the Year. In How her- have I not heard about this person? Like, I'm like, did I not pay attention whenever I went to the museum in Tahlequah? Like, what? How? How? Did they how? just not tell this story? I mean, I just don't. I don't know. I don't know either. I don't know either. In her first elected term, Wilma focused on jobs, housing, and health care, along with fighting the federal government for land and waterways that belong to the tribe to help their community grow. In the middle of her first term, she was invited to meet with President Ronald Reagan, boo, boo, <laughs> at the White House to discuss the Native people's grievances with his administration. To be a fly on the wall in that room. I can only um, imagine. Right. So she was one of three speakers chosen to meet with Reagan out of the 16 chiefs. And she was incredibly disappointed because she hoped it would be a productive meeting. Reagan completely discounted each of the issues they brought to his attention. And she brushed off the meeting as nothing but a photo opportunity and good publicity for the president. Yeah, that sounds like good old Ronald Reagan for you. But honestly, this photo op did her a lot of good because it put her in the spotlight again. So again, her name was kind of like in the zeitgeist and she was able to continue to talk about the issues that were important to her. Sure, yeah. Wilma's kidney disease worsened in 1990 and one of her kidneys failed. Her brother Don donated one of his kidneys and she underwent a kidney transplant in the summer, returning to work just a few weeks later. Whoa. And while she was in recovery in Boston, she met with officials from D.C. and signed an agreement for the Cherokee Nation to participate in a project which allowed the tribe to self-govern and assume responsibility for the use of federal funds, which is huge. And she did this on bed rest. <laughs> like, I that's incredible. Like, I can't. I cannot even imagine the mental that strength ethic is just <sighs> Out of the park. Yeah. So she's doing badass things. She's had a kidney transplant. March of 1991, she's like, you know what? We're doing this again. I'm running for re-election again. And again, she was invited to the White House, this time by President H.W. Bush. This time, Bush's officials... <laughs> I mean, yeah, boo, but like less boo than Reagan. Um, but sure, also, yeah, this okay. time, the Bush officials were very receptive to input from the tribal leaders, which gave Wilma a hope for a government-to-government relationship to follow. 
She again won re-election, like I said, but this time there was no runoff. She won by 83% of the vote. Between yeah, ni- Wilma gets stuff done, they know. Right, totally. Between 1991 and 1992, her administration revived the tribal Sequoia High School, working with the American Association of University Women to create a grant program which would match Cherokee mentors with girls attending the boarding school. She also passed the Indian Arts and Crafts Act of 1990, which provided both civil and criminal penalties for non-Native artists who promote their work as Indian art. Yes. Fucking bad ass. She endorsed President Clinton in 1992, but didn't donate any money to the campaign. I feel like that was important to add. Nor should she. Right? She was invited to take part in an economic conference and participate and participated in his transition team for presidency. So she was like a huge part of Bill Clinton's team at the start of it. It's crazy. Because she was rubbing elbows with the highest level officials in the country, she became dubbed the most influential Indian leader in the country. She published her biography in 1993 entitled Mankiller, A Chief and Her People, Becoming a National Bestseller. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I want to read it. Me, too. It's in my Amazon cart right now. Oh, I want to read it. Okay. Gloria Steinem wrote a review for the book saying, As one woman's journey, Mankiller opens the heart. As a history of a people, it informs the mind. Together, it teaches us that as long as people like Wilma Mankiller carry the flame within them, centuries of ignorance and genocide can't extinguish the human spirit. Wow. And they would actually go on to become really good friends. And when Gloria Steinem got married, she got married and had her ceremony on Mankiller Flats. Wow. Isn't that cool? That is so cool. So cool. In May of 1993, she was granted yet another honorary doctorate of Humans Letters from Drury College. She was given the American Association Wait, of- wait. Drury College where? I didn't write down where. There's a jury college in Springfield. That's why I asked. I want to say it was Alabama, but I didn't write it down. Oh, okay. I don't know. But she got another doctorate degree. Then she was given the American Association of University Women's Achievement Award. And in October of that year was indicted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. She was indicted into the Oklahoma Hall of Fame in 1994, as well as what is called the National Cowgirl Museum and Hall of Fame in Fort Worth, Texas. And she's got to be like... In her 50s. That's incredible. Like, it's a lot to accomplish in 50-something years. And there's more. Like, she's not fucking done. In 1994, Clinton invited her to moderate the Nation to Nation Summit, where leaders from 545 federally organized tribes in the U.S. were assembled to discuss various topics. In 1995, she was diagnosed with lymphoma and chose not to run again. After she retired as chief, she spent a semester as a visiting professor at Dartmouth, where she taught Native American studies. After that, she went on a national lecture tour, speaking on health care, tribal sovereignty, women's rights, and cancer awareness. In 1998, President Clinton awarded her the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Shortly after the event, she suffered another kidney failure and received yet another transplant, this time from her niece. As previously, she immediately returned to work, resuming her lecture tours and working on four books simultaneously. At this point, I want her to take a break. I'm like, you've had two (laughs) kidney transplants. Like, please, like, relax. Go to bed. 
1999, she was diagnosed with breast cancer and underwent a double lumpectomy followed by radiation treatment. In Gosh, 2000- she's had a lot of medical issues. So many health issues. In 2002, she contributed to the book, That Takes Ovaries, Bold Females and Brazen Acts. She worked on many other books, too, but I like the title of this one the best. Me, too. So I added it in there. (laughs) In 2003, she worked with the Oklahoma Breast Cancer Summit to encourage early screenings and raise money to fight the disease. Though she fought so many illnesses in the past, in March of 2010, her husband, Charlie, announced that Wilma was terminally ill with pancreatic cancer. On April 6th, 2010, she died from the disease in her home in Oklahoma. About 1,200 people attended her memorial service at the Cherokee National Cultural Grounds on April 10th, which was attended by many dignitaries, leaders, and activists, including statements from her friends Bill and Hillary Clinton, as well as President Barack Obama. A few days after she was buried, she was honored with a congressional resolution from the U.S. House of Representatives. She was also presented a posthumous award for lifetime achievement from the five civilized tribes. In her life, she held 14 honorary doctorate degrees. Over the course of her three terms as chief, she reinvigorated the Cherokee Nation through community development, bringing people together for the sake of their own community. She became a role model for Native and non-Native women and girls. Wilma once said, Prior to my election, young Cherokee girls never would have thought they might grow up and become chief. In a 2013 feature film, The Cherokee Word for Water, it tells the story of her work on the Bell Project, which launched her political career and was also the start of her friendship with future husband Charlie, who himself produced the film and took 20 years of planning and fundraising to make. In 2018, Mankiller became one of the honorees in the first induction ceremony held by the National Native American Hall of Fame. And lastly, in 2021, it was announced that Wilma Mankiller, along with fellow badass women Maya Angelou, Sally Ride, Adelina Otero Warren, and Anna Mae Wong will appear on the U.S. Quarter as part of the American Quarters program. Ugh, chills. Didn't Love that? It. Oh, I just... I... This was one of the funnest ones I had in a while. Like, I love her. No, she's incredible. Like, she's truly an incredible person. Unbelievable. Wow. Unbelievable. I cannot believe. I cannot believe. I mean, surely I'd heard her name before and just didn't retain the information. But how would you not remember that name? I, I do, you would think I would have. That's you really the whole would. thing. And like, especially last week when we were listing off all of these names of people that I was familiar with. And there's this name that jumps at you and you're like, who? Like, that's wild to me. Well, and it was very clear to me when reading the, like, comments under, like, all the articles talking about the quarters that a lot of people don't know who she is because that was a lot of the conversation was, like, man killer, like, LOL, you know? Uh, So that's, it's, it's upsetting that people don't know who she is. And thank you so much for enlightening us today. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. 
Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. All right. So I wanted to talk about Raven Wilkinson, who was the first African-American woman to dance for a major classical ballet company. Would it be inappropriate for me to say that's so Raven? That is so Raven. It's absolutely not inappropriate of you to say. Okay, good. (laughs) So I first heard about Raven Wilkinson when I was watching a documentary years ago about Misty Copeland, who is, you know, a phenomenal, famous... If you haven't heard of her. uh, I mean, just look her up. She is incredible. And it was... One of the things that really stood out to me when I was watching that documentary, because, like, I... While I enjoy going to ballets and I think that what ballet dancers do is superhuman like it is incredible to watch people dance on point um it's not anything that I was ever like I'm not a a big aficionado of ballet or anything like that or like any of that like classic dance um I still found the documentary about Misty Copeland very very compelling and in it she is talking a lot about what it was like to be a black ballerina and how difficult that was for her uh, yeah because the sport is one a very expensive sport and she was from a lower socioeconomic background but also it requires a lot of uniformity they want everybody in the chorus to look the same and Uh a lot of times that means the same skin tone and also like the same body type etc etc yeah it's a very like white centric uh, activity. I feel like it's a very like Anglo-Saxon geared look that they go for. You know what I mean? You are to be very waifish and thin and usually blonde. And you right. know, there's and an idea in your head of what this like ballerina is. Right. And Misty Copeland has this very like muscular, like athlete's body almost, right. you know, which is very different from a lot of prima ballerinas. And unless you are dancing principal, they really do want you to look like a carbon copy of the girl you're dancing next to. And that's right. been an excuse that's been used um, throughout history to exclude a lot of black ballerinas, basically, right. from, from the sport. So, Anne Raven Wilkinson was born on February 2nd, 
1935 in Manhattan and grew up in a middle-class home in Harlem. She was the daughter of Frost B, which I just love the name Frost. Oh, Frost. Amazing. Frost? Yeah, and her brother's name like was... Like, I have some Frost on my windshield? Yes. Wow, I like that. Yeah, and her brother's name was also Frost. Um, and Anne J. Wilkinson. So both her and her brother were named after their parents. So Frost Jr. and <laughs> Anne Jr. I wonder if they called the brother Frosty. I hope so. I, I really hope so. Hope so. <laughs> I read one thing that said that her brother was like 50 years younger than her. And I was like, that has to be a typo. <laughs> like, Five zero. <laughs> I, I found it in one article I read and then I couldn't find it anywhere else because no one writes about. Doesn't Frosty that drive Jr. you crazy? And then I was Frosty like, Jr. is he actually 50 years younger than her? Because that would be something. Imagine. Okay, what did like her mom have Raven when she was like 14 and then Frosty Jr. in their 60s? Or like, her father remarried somebody very young and had oh. Frosty in his 70s or something, which men can do. They can do that. Okay. Anyway, we don't know. I just want to talk about Frosty. <laughs> we'll never know. Um, but her father was a dentist and her mother was a homemaker. Her father's office at 152nd Street and Amsterdam Avenue was located across the street from the Dance Theater of Harlem. When she was five, she attended her first ballet, Coppelia, which was performed by the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo. And she said, I remember being so overwhelmed that I started crying. And she said that in an interview in 2014 to Point Magazine, which I can totally relate to. Like, if you have an artistic spirit and like you see something that just overwhelms you, I feel that all the time, especially watching dancers, like an incredible dance performance can make you cry. You know, there is something about watching just anybody at the top of their game or doing something so well that is so mesmerizing and inspiring and really does move you to tears right and can totally influence you in the way of like oh I want to do that I feel like I felt that way about films when I was very young as well like I was just like oh my gosh like Like I want to light bulb moment of course that's what I want to do totally so not long after seeing her first ballet her mother, who had studied dance herself in Chicago, agreed to enroll her in lessons. She took young Raven, then still going by Anne, to the School of American Ballet for lessons, but they turned her away, saying she was too young and couldn't start lessons until she turned nine. Eager to begin her education in dance, she began being trained in the Dalcroz method, which is basically just eurythmics. It's just learning how to move your body as a form of artistic expression and a way to train the ear to develop a rhythm in the body. So it's not really like dance. Ballet. It, yeah, in the way that we would It's not think technique. It. Yeah. But I actually think it probably benefited her so much to have this like base before I mean, she that- went in. That kind of sounds like what like modern day beginners classes kind of are because like I started ballet when I was like two, but Mm -hmm. it's not ballet. You know what I mean? It's like learning to move with the music and all this kind of stuff. And then also like it was kind of interesting that they said that she couldn't start until nine. I was trying to kind of figure this in my head because I feel like nine is too young for point shoes, but then wouldn't you be able to start earlier on just like regular flat ballet slippers I mean I don't know anything about this world I mean you would think and I don't know if that was an excuse that they gave her to keep her from from signing up 
or if that was a rule that they had back then because things have changed so so much in right. that time period but I don't know I mean like I was put in tap whenever I was probably like five and like you said it really wasn't we weren't tap dancing it was basically like learning all the positions and then doing like we would learn how to move our bodies right pull an imaginary rope like do those yeah. kinds of like exercises dude I was such a good tap dancer when I was three I performed with the five-year-olds humble brag wow I don't know why I didn't keep up with my tapping but I would really love to take an adult tap class if anyone's interested in joining me I'm a terrible I'm not a terrible dancer I am very bad at picking up choreography quickly which is something you need as a dancer Um, I'm good at that (laughs) so for her ninth birthday her uncle gifted her lessons at the Swoboda Swol I'm not sure how you say that S-W-O-B-O-D-A we're gonna say Swoboda school okay which later became known as the Ballet Russe school there she trained under well-known dancers from Russia's Bolshoi theater Maria and Valislav Swoboda. When she was 16 in 1951, Sergei Denham, director of the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo, bought the Swoboda School. This gave her the opportunity to audition for their troupe. Despite being one of the better dancers, she was continuously rejected and was eventually told by a friend in the administration that despite the fact that she was light-skinned, she was unlikely to ever be accepted as a troop member due to her race and the fact that the troop often toured in the segregated South. She was advised, mm. yes, and she was advised many times to give up seeking the position. Like They were like, I mean, listen. This is the thing. I don't think you should ever tell somebody to give up, but I do appreciate the fact that they were honest with her because I think that that can be so disheartening. She's like, I'm good enough. Why am I not making it? What is going on? So I at least I'm like, I would just want someone to tell me. Right. I think so. At least now she knows what she's fighting against. You know, I think that they were honest with her because she was so tenacious because she right. wouldn't give up. Right. Like she wasn't taking no for an answer. So it's like we're going to have to stop her. Right. <laughs> you know. So she continued to take classes at the school, and in the meantime, she enrolled at Columbia University and began taking private lessons with Madame Ludmilla Schaller of the St. Petersburg Imperial Ballet. Who so much Russia. Right. Which, of course, it's ballet. Like, but yeah. I mean, it just goes to show, like, she is studying with some of the, like, best dancers in New York at the time, yeah. right? And this woman instructed her on technique. So she has been dancing since she was five at this yeah. point. Yeah, yeah. Each year, she would audition again to join the troupe. Again and again, she was rejected until finally, in 1955, on her fourth try auditioning, she was accepted on a six-week trial basis. Like, she wore them down. Eventually, they were yeah. like, listen, fine. Like, we'll so try good. you out. Shut up. Right? And also, it's that old adage, right, which is just like, which is just like, be so good they can't ignore you. Yeah. And I feel like that's who she was you know yeah after her six weeks were up the troupe was so impressed with her that they accepted her full-time and she became an official company member making her at the age of 20 the first african-american woman to receive a contract to dance full-time with a major ballet company yeah girl yeah During her time with the company raven performed a varied repertoire including the waltz solo listen i don't know anything about ballet like I already said 
but she performed a lot of stuff, okay? (laughs) Cool. Sounds great. The Chinese dance in The Nutcracker. She had a featured role in Raymonda and ensemble roles in numerous one-act ballets. And for the first two years of her career with the company, her skin color didn't seem to be too much of an issue, thanks in part to a number of foreign dancers from South America in the company. So because... Oh, so she was looking like some of the other dancers. Right, yeah. And, you know... If you see pictures of her, she is, first of all, stunning. Like, she is so beautiful. But secondly, specifically in some of the pictures that are taken in black and white, which can be very deceiving, she does, she has African-American features, but she is quite light-skinned. So I think from a distance, especially dancing next to other tan dancers, maybe from, like, Latin America, she could blend in more, you know? Okay, yeah. But then Raven's tour throughout the U.S. took her to the still racially segregated South. In order to perform with the company in the South, she was asked not to publicize her race, and the company asked her to wear white makeup on stage to conceal her racial identity. Mm. In 1957, the owner of a hotel in Atlanta asked Wilkinson if she was black. She refused to lie and she was barred from staying at the hotel with the rest of the company and was sent away in a colored taxi to stay alone in a colored hotel, separated from... I mean, you're in an unknown place, in an unfriendly place. Yeah, and And you're sent away from everyone that you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Later in an interview, Raven would say, I didn't want to put the company in danger, but also never wanted to deny what I was. If someone questioned me directly, I couldn't say, no, I'm not black. Yeah. During the same tour, two members of the Ku Klux Klan bolted on stage, interrupting a performance in Montgomery, Alabama, asking, and this is their words, not mine, where's the Negra? When none of the company members responded Mm. to them, the men left. Nonetheless, as word of Wilkinson's racial identity became generally known, she was not allowed to participate in performances in southern cities, and the company sent her ahead to safer cities on the tour. So they basically Ugh. told her, they were like, listen, it's unsafe for you. It's not good it's for us. It's unsafe for everybody else. Right. Like, it, it just sucks that it's like she can't just do what everybody else is doing. Because people have to be so hateful. Right. And <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it just sucks. Like, of course, they're still giving her the opportunity. She's still dancing. This is great. But it's it's frustrating that she can't go along with what everybody else is doing because of other people's nearsightedness, you know? Yeah. And I imagine she's feeling a lot of pressure and responsibility as well. I mean, like you have to be feeling that, that like all these other dancers who you love and care about, you have to be thinking that like you're affecting their experience on tour as well. Right. You know, and even though they completely backed her up, like she would go on to say that they supported her all the way, like throughout all of this, like her fellow dancers did. Yeah. And I'm sure that they would never have said to her, like you're a burden to us or anything like that. No. Just speaking from my own personal experience, I can imagine just feeling that way myself, putting that own pressure on myself, you know, and also being excluded in this way where like the company is having to make all of these exceptions for you, like send you ahead yeah. um, to, to I'm other I'm sure cities. she felt like a bother. Right. And it, you was, know? it just sucks. Like it's a horrible way to begin your working life in this thing that you have always, always dreamed of doing. Like it's right. just horrible because people are so 
hateful. <sighs> so even though her fellow dancers supported her, the company itself struggled to support her and maintain their Southern audiences. Ultimately, one of the company's ballet mistresses told her she would not go any further in her ballet career and should leave to start a school for African dance. So I can just picture this. But you know this woman thought she was like doing the nice thing where she was like, listen, you might not find a home here, but why don't you go start your own school for other black children? You know, like in (laughs) African dance. Go fuck yourself, bitch. So, yeah. Discouraged from these experiences and feeling no longer welcome by the administration of the company, Raven left the Ballet Russe company in 1961. Following, Good for you, Raven. Yes. Following her departure from Ballet Russe, she auditioned for several U.S.-based ballet companies, including New York City Ballet, American Ballet Theater, and the Metropolitan Opera Ballet. None wow. Would, none would take her. <sighs> She would never be hired by another American ballet company again. Are you kidding me? No. It's terrible. It's so sad. This is a horrible story, no, Keegan. It's okay. can, can, just hang on. Okay. <laughs> she was so disheartened by what she saw as her fall from grace that she stopped dancing altogether for two years and in 1963 even joined a convent in Font de Lac, Wisconsin. Wow, if that's not a cliche, she's it's like, like, well, I'm gonna run my away. job in showbiz didn't work out. Guess I'll be a nun. It feels very Aquarius to me. I'm like, yeah, that vibes. I get that. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, and she was a devout Catholic. So, yeah, but it makes sense. It just reminds me when Sophia's friend dies in Golden Girls and then she decides to be a nun. And it's just like, that's not going to happen. Like, you it's not who you are deep down, you know? No, no, and, no. And it wasn't who Raven was either because she spent six months in the convent and then she realized that she had been given a gift from God and she didn't want to waste that gift, right? Exactly. So she left the convent and began taking classes and was soon performing again. In 1966, Sylvester Campbell, who was an African-American principal dancer with the Dutch National Ballet, met Raven and suggested that she audition for their company. Mm. She was then invited to join the troupe as a soloist, and she moved to the Netherlands in 1967, where she stayed with the Dutch National Ballet for seven years, dancing in many prestigious shows, including Swan Lake. Wow. But Raven was homesick for the United States, and in 1974, at the age of 38, she decided to return to New York. Upon her return, the New York City Opera invited her to dance. She performed with them as a principal dancer until she was 49 years old. Oh, my Lanta. Which is a long time for a dancer, especially a ballet dancer. so much on your body. Yeah, because your your body wears out. And like, what a fuck you to so many sports. And obviously, figure skating is fresh in my mind. Um, I just think about how disposable young female athletes are in these sports and how hard they're pushed at a young age to the point where their bodies are so broken by the time they're in their 20s that they can't have these long careers. So the fact that she is able to have started when she was five and to continually dance until she's 49, I don't even know how that's possible. Well, yeah, I remember the first time I saw a ballerina's feet and I was like, whoa, because yeah. it does a number on your knuckles, on your toes. Like, I mean, 
it's your entire body. I mean, it's just anything athletic, anything, anytime you're moving your body like that every day, all day for that many years, you're going to reap the benefits of it. And the fact that she was able to maintain good enough health to continue performing, even though I'm sure she had millions of injuries. I mean, that is like unbelievable, but it's also such a huge like F you to the people who think that young girls can't have long, healthy, wonderful careers or young women. You know what I mean? I think there's this idea and we see this a lot with female actresses. Once they hit a certain age, they either play, you know, the mom or the grandma or they're not wanted anymore and they're just kind of pushed to the wayside. They're no longer desirable ingenues anymore. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that she was able to kind of like put her middle finger up to that whole concept and continue dancing into her 40s and almost be 50 years old kind of shows you that like there really is no time limit to your success. Right. And it's all about your passion as well. Like she went on to say later in her life that she just wanted to dance. Like it had nothing to do with anything else. It was just like she just wanted to dance. And she (sighs) was she was never going to deny her blackness. But she was also so sad that the fact that her race kept her from being able to live her full potential doing the thing that she loved. Like, well, it seems it's not like her race, she it's felt people who, who kept her from doing that, you know? Right. But it's like, it's almost like the dancer and her race to her were almost just like inter- intertwinably both so important. You know what I mean? Like, she wasn't able to deny either side of her. She wasn't able to deny that dancer side of her. And she was unable to deny her identity. Right. I mean, a lot of people point to an interview she gave in which she said or her brother said that her race was inconsequential to her. And like, I think that they they look at that as a negative. But I don't think she felt that way because she definitely said that she never denied and would never deny. No, she was very proud of it. I think when what she meant when she said that was as a dancer being black shouldn't matter. Like it shouldn't have mattered. Like my talent should have spoken for itself. Like I just wanted to dance, you know? Yeah. And so she was a principal dancer until she was 49. However, she continued on with the company as a character dancer and an actor until 2011. So holy shit, she, she kept doing it for a very, very long time. I mean, what year was she born? She was born in 40 something, right? In 35. 1935 and she kept dancing in her 80s just sashaying away yeah until 2011 pirouetting her heart out Mm -hmm. as much as she could do like she realized at the age of 49 like okay I can't be a principal dancer anymore but she's doing like character things and like she's still performing with the I don't need to see her do anything crazy the fact that that woman oh I, yeah. I love it. And that same year, she met a young black ballerina named Misty Copeland. The two began a friendship, and Raven soon became the young girl's mentor. Aww. Misty went on to become the first African-American ballerina to be named a principal dancer at the American Ballet Theater in New York, which is one yep. of the companies that Raven auditioned for. And was turned down from. Mm-hmm. And it is one of the nation's most important ballet companies. Oh, yes. Until this I'm not time, a ballerina, and I know right, that. Right, exactly. 
Until this time, there had never been a black female principal dancer at a major international company. So Misty Copeland broke that barrier in 2011. I was just going to say, how shitty is that? That we're talking about 2011. Right. And we've had Raven doing the thing since the 40s and 50s. Like the fact that we're celebrating this in 2011 is so disheartening. Which, to be honest, actually, I'm not even sure if she was named a principal dancer in 2011. Um, that's when she was Misty just a and, dancer. <laughs> yeah. And that's when Misty and um, Raven became acquainted. But it might right. have actually been a couple years later. Uh, that's just so upsetting. Yeah. When Misty became the first black dancer to dance the lead in Swan Lake for ABT, Raven met her on stage to present her with flowers at her debut. Aww. Wilkinson presented the 2014 Dance Magazine Award to Copeland in December of that year, and the next year, Misty would present the 2015 Dance slash USA Trustee Award to Raven Wilkinson. So these two women are just, they're so aware of how integral they are to each other yeah yes like, it's incredible what a beautiful friendship yeah um in 2018 she passed away quietly in her home in manhattan at the age of 83 and i was unable to find a cause of death i was really hoping you were gonna say she died loudly Dancing. and with a bang <laughs> instead yeah. of dying quietly dying quietly in her home you know and i hope that it was painless but we don't we don't actually know, but um, Misty Copeland uh, would go on to write a children's book that was inspired by Raven Wilkinson entitled Firebird. And in the book, she, Misty, is kind of the Raven Wilkinson character and is mentoring a younger black dancer. So, Oh my goodness, well, Firebird is also on. a very beautiful piece of ballet music that's used in skating all the time it's like very powerful i love the symbolism yeah it's all good oh my goodness what an amazing human being yeah i mean and it's one of those people so often i feel like in these like forgotten feminist faves i end up covering people who i don't think were aware of how amazing they were because they right. you know they were like she was like I just want to dance like I just want to yeah. dance like that's all she cared about but in doing so and in, in pursuing that dream in a world that really was doing everything it could to try and prevent her from being successful in that dream yep. she was a trailblazer and she did yeah. open doors for other people and the fact that like Misty Copeland now exists as one of the like top ballerinas I know, mean would we have had a Misty Copeland if we didn't have a Raven that's always the question it's like you never know your impact Ugh. on the people who come behind you just because you were brave enough to be yourself and I think that that's such a beautiful thing that is so Raven yeah, that's so Raven. That is so Raven. <laughs> oh my God. Our younger audience is just like, what? <laughs> you mean Raven's house? Oh. It's the future I can see. All right. So I hope that you all enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoy this episode and enjoyed the research doing it. We would love for some more of your topic suggestions. If there are any feminist faves that you would like us to cover in the future, please go ahead and email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or direct message us on Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist. I don't know how many days left you have at this time that I'm recording, but just to remind you all, you have until January 30th to order your holiday Slay the Page 
Patriarchy merch. Uh, if you would like to shop around the merch store, you can go to our Instagram, like I said, at Angry Neighborhood Feminist, and go to the link in our bio and shop around. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can rate and review us on the business page and chat with the other listeners on the group page. And just another reminder and thank you to everybody who has recently rated and reviewed us on Apple Podcasts. And a reminder to those of you who haven't done it, it is the best way that you can possibly support us. And it means so much to us to hear the wonderful, kind words from you all. All right, that's all we have for you today. With all that being said, we encourage you to rage on. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.